There are so many supplements out there. How do you choose? If there was just one supplement that Trey and I would recommend, it's definitely Ningxia Red. We have consistently drank Ningxia every day since May of 2015. It's a whole body health and wellness supplement that's a powerhouse full of antioxidants and nutrition. Ningxia Red is made with pureed wolfberries, also known as goji berries, along with blueberry, plum, cherry, aronia, and pomegranate juices. These are very high in antioxidants that boost immunity and protect your body against oxidative stress. It also has food-grade essential oils like orange and lemon, yuzu, and tangerine. These provide an incredible dose of D-limonene. Trust me, Google that. This is just a two-ounce shot of liquid gold, and it supports your body for better energy and healthy cellular function. Why is that? Well, that's because you're getting antioxidants equivalent to eating like eight pounds of carrots and 16 whole oranges. Trust me, your liver and your eyes will thank you. If you'd like more information, visit my website, www.amycastles.com. What was the first thing that your mom would ask you before you'd go to bed at night? Did you brush your teeth? I don't know about you, but my mom always asked that. Since I was a kid, healthy gums and teeth have always been important to me. But after a lot of research, I figured out that there's actually a lot of junk in the commercial toothpaste. Everything from SLS to artificial flavors and colors, sweeteners even. And I didn't like the way that they didn't actually get my teeth super clean. I felt like they weren't really actually supporting good overall oral health. Well, I'm so excited to tell you about a product that I created in 2016. Sparkle Dust is a non-toxic, chemical-free tooth cleansing powder that instantly brightens and strengthens and remineralizes your teeth and your gums. It will leave your teeth feeling like never before. They will feel cleaner, smoother, and brighter. You will feel like you just left the dentist. I love that feeling. Sparkle Dust is made from nine different organic earth-sourced ingredients, including minerals and clays. It's a natural solution proven to get you the smile that you've always dreamed of. Learn more about Sparkle Dust by visiting my website at www.mysparkledust.com. It's time for a healthy dose of According to the Castles, the show where we talk about marriage, family, faith, health, nutrition, fitness, and so much more. And now, please welcome your hosts, Amy and Trey Castles. Hey, it's Amy Castles. Trey Castles. We have a very special guest, Missy Ashton. Also, Melissa Ashton, but friends call her Missy. Right. Okay, Melissa. Missy is a wife. She's a mother of six, speaker, author, and executive business coach. Executive leadership coach, excuse me. And you have... An amazing, you have amazing stories. I know you have lots of stories, so I don't even know which story we're going to hone in on today, but I'll tell everyone that if you listened to last week's episode with Ben Blankenship and heard him talk about his sister multiple times on the podcast, here she is, (laughs) Missy Ashton. Live in the flesh. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you here. So tell us, tell us your story. Tell us where you, where, where you are today. How did you get there? What has gone on in your life? Well, that's a big, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. I'll, I'll say like, I'll start out, you know, when I was young and growing up, first of all, I'm the oldest. And so for Ben, he's the youngest. And so there's 10 years between us. There's five of y'all, right? There's five of us. I have four younger brothers. Oh my gosh. And so, and then the brother under, just under me um, was four years younger, and then they're all two years apart. So I'm quite a bit older than my brothers. And so my early childhood um, actually was very uh, charmed, you know, a very loving, peaceful 
you know, my memories, my mom and dad, um, you know, just were very loving to each other and to me. And, you know, there was um, order and the boys hadn't come in yet. <laughs> yeah, they were just they were just starting. So um, that I really experienced more of that as a young child, I think, than any of my brothers did. Um, but as time went on and, and, you know, my younger brothers were born, my mom started really struggling more and more and health wise and in general. And I knew when I was growing up that my mom had been through, you know, really severe um, abuse growing up in all kinds of ways. I heard a lot of stories. Um, I knew that her father was an alcoholic and he had been in the war and, you know, heard all these war stories and learned what PTSD was because of him um, and hearing about it. But, but as she got, you know, started to have more kids and started to have more health issues and, you know, she started to really struggle more and more. And so I started to more and more um, like be a caregiver for my brothers and helping out with them and taking care of them. You know, they, I was really their second mom growing up. And as time went on, I mean, she started struggling more and more. Um, I really more and more um, stepped in to take care of them. Mm. Um, and then as, you know, as I got older, I think re I remember around the ages of 11 and 12, um, I can remember my mom getting more and more sick and being less present. And I didn't really at the time recognize that she was struggling with any kind of addictions, but there was things that I knew were off. Um, but by this time, Ben was about two. Yeah, he was a, yeah, he was little. You guys were 10 years or 12 we're, years We're apart. 10 years apart. Mm -hmm. okay. And so he was little. Um, I was getting into teenager, you know, world. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so in, as, as I started to drive and things like that, I can remember, um, really being worried about leaving my brothers, you know, behind. And so I started taking them with me everywhere. It was not uncommon for me to have my brothers with me hmm. everywhere I went, especially the youngest two, uh, Davis and Ben. Um, I, it was, you know, I think most teenagers, they don't want their younger siblings, you know, tagging along. But to me, that was just normal. I took mm -hmm. them with me um, even to parties. And, you know, I remember going to the beach um, as a senior and Ben was with me. I remember him playing. Um, I remember him being on the quarterback of our high school. I remember him being on his shoulders and then playing Frisbee and throwing a football with him. You know, he was just there. Yeah. And that was just completely normal to me to have my brothers but um, with me. So as they got older and, you know, I was getting older, they were getting older. They started getting into, you know, different kind of substances and trying out things and then they started getting into trouble. And so, you know, chaos in our home and, you know, my mom and dad, you know, with any kind of substances, um, you know, one of the first things is like fighting starts in a marriage. They begin to like really, you know, fight a lot and, um, you know, things started to be chaotic. And as my brothers got older and started, you know, getting into these kinds of things, drinking and trying different drugs and things, um, they, the chaos just, it multiplied. Mm -hmm. a lot and they started getting into trouble you know it was really a blessing to me um i i i always say there's always gifts in the hard things like in the really difficult things in our lives Th there's always gifts and sometimes you don't see them mm -hmm. until later 
but they're always there. But one of the gifts for me is that I didn't want anything to do with alcohol or drugs or pills. I didn't even like to use the, um, at the dentist, you know, like the gas. gas. Uh I didn't like the way it made me feel. It was, you know, it felt out of control for me. Yeah. And I didn't. Seeing the destruction of their lives just forced you in the opposite direction. It, it definitely forced me in the opposite direction, but also when you grow up in, in you're around the unexpected, you're around chaos, you want predictability. Mm. And so I didn't want to participate in anything that was going to feel like, you know, out of control or, you know, I wasn't going to be able to predict the outcome of it. And so that kind of thing was just, it just really was never appealing to me, you know, to be part of my life. That's kind of how I was too. I didn't like feeling uh out of control i didn't like and i also didn't like feeling the next day as if i had to doubt what i said or what i did it it, then the insecurity that comes along with that i didn't like that so i quit drinking when i was 21 yeah that's always a joke yeah (laughs) yeah i quit drinking yeah Uh, but i i had no problem quitting drinking because of my migraines i couldn't anyway I would right. just get deathly sick. So it wasn't, a, it was no problem. And I just didn't, I just didn't like the way that um, marijuana made me feel. I just, my heart would just race and it had just major anxiety. I didn't like it. So I had, it was not a big deal to just not even be a part of it. Yeah. I really think that all of those things, which are just so normal. I mean, I, I remember my brother mentioning this and I didn't realize how, you know, much they were getting into these things. I, I did to a degree, but I didn't realize how much, but also I think in our society and for a lot of kids, um, those kind of things really are normal. Very normal. It's so normal. Um, but also I think if, you know, it, if people realize that all of these things, no matter how normal they are or how not a big deal they are, I have never met anyone that they really serve them well in mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't, think that they, you know, any substances, you know, um, like alcohol, you know, marijuana, whatever it is like that. I've never seen it truly serve anyone well. Yeah. I think any sort of dependence on something is going to uh, have some sort of wreck that it's going to create. It's going to create a mess at some point. There's always a crash that's coming. Mm -hmm. Always. Well, you know what? Last week, Ben said something um, profound, but I can't remember it. (laughs) Okay. He said, he he goes, addictions or dependence will lead you either one or two places. And I remember he said one of them was death. I can't remember what the other jail jail jail. Yeah. Okay. And this is true. Yeah, this is true. So, okay. So you're in college now. Well, I wasn't in college. I had moved out. So I go, I grew up and then I, um, at a young age, I was 18 years old and I was a single mom and I knew, um, that I, in order for me to survive, and even I would like to say, like, if you back up a little bit at like 16 years old, I realized that I wanted a different life. I did not want a life like this. And I started paying attention to the adults in my life and what they did. Mm. One of the, the common things in my, that I saw was the adults in my life that I looked up to, they, um, in some way, form or fashion went to church um, they had a, <clears throat> they had a, um, a family that they didn't yell, you know, they didn't mm-hmm. scream, you know, there was these things that they did. And I, and I really made a decision early on. That's what I want. And mm-hmm. I'm going to have a different life. 
mm-hmm. whatever it takes. I didn't really know at the That's time. Powerful at that age. I, yeah, I, I remember making a decision. I'm not. I will not live like this. And my, I want to create a different life. And I think that decision. I didn't realize how powerful and profound that was to decide that at that age, but I had decided it and I had made up my mind. And so then you fast forward. Um, I was like 19, 18, 19. Um, I had my first son and I was single, very you know, young. And I knew that in order to create that life and to create this life for now I have a child and for my future life, I knew I had to leave. Probably one of the well, not probably, definitely one of the hardest things I've done in my life is to drive away and leave my younger brothers at home. Mm. You were their little mommy. I was, I was, and and I grew up with this sense of needing to protect them and watch over them and make sure that, you know, that they were safe and that they were cared for and that they had the things that they needed. Um, so I had this sense of that. And so that was such a tug for me, but I knew in order in, for me to survive and to create this life that I knew I wanted to be different, I, I knew it had to be. And I remember driving out of my driveway um, in, um, in my, you know, Toyota Celica that, it, you know, it was uh, not in the best shape and, you know, kind of a ragtag car and just everything I owned piled in it. And I had this baby. And I remember um, driving out of the driveway, knowing, knowing that I was, I was leaving this life behind. I, I had, I had tears coming down my eyes and I didn't know, I didn't really even have a place to go. I was, I was like crashed on a friend's couch, you know, and I kind of hopped around until I could, you know, get a place. And, um, so, but I felt also like I was betraying my -hmm. brother's when I left, I felt very guilty. So it was a very difficult thing yeah. for me to do. Um, but and, and at this point, you you had already recognized your mom's dependencies on. Yeah, at this point, you know, I knew, and and really everyone knew um, that she really struggled with um, um, uh, pain pill. You know, and then by as it went on, it was you know a whole. Doctors in those days loved to give a whole buffet of lots oh, of oh, pills. Yeah. It was kind of a time that doctors, you know, really, that's what they did. Yeah. And and she truly, you know, had some serious, she had in, some injuries and she had some very serious health problems that actually she really needed, you know. It's not that she didn't need them, she did, but the solution back then um, for for doctors were just, you know, to give you- Write a script. Write tons of scripts. Mm-hmm. And also, um, you know, when they did that, those patients became their best customers Dependent. and they, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's really a great business model. If you think about it, they you know, were legal drug dealers, they were legal drug dealers and they made a lot of money off of people. And like many my mom. of these doctors have ownership in the methadone clinics too. Yep. They, they do in, in both sides. Uh, they do. And then they sad. were, they were in on it with the the pharmaceutical companies and all that too. So there's my mom is one and there are many others that really, um, and, and I see it too. Now I can see it in generations, the effect of, of during this time period of, of how that was ultra common, but, and there's been actually, there's a doctor in, we lived in Magnolia just right here, you know, right by here. And one of the doctors that was, she went to for years is, is, um, I don't know if he's still in prison, but he went to prison. For abusing, oh um, and, you know, 
just being a script writer. Right. Basically. Yeah. He went to prison later. Oh. Yeesh. Yeah. Ugh. We had a, a doctor on a few weeks ago, Dr. Chase Banks, and we, we talked about um, being your own health advocate and learning uh, what you're taking, what the side effects are and how to overcome uh, health, your health in other ways than just accepting a prescription. Right. Because there are there's just so many options out there now. And the health industry um, has a lot of advancements, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the doctors are offering it because insurance doesn't cover it just yet. But even though these tests and things are out uh, in other countries, we're about 10 years behind. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Okay. So now you have one baby, you're sleeping on a couch. Yeah. And where did that lead you then? Well, I, you know, really was just trying to, you know, figure it out, survive. I worked as a waitress then, and um, I decided I was going to go to school. You know, I enrolled in a community college and, you know, started taking classes and and decided, um, you know, I I was going to, you know, invest in myself and, Mm -hmm. you know, really, you know, move forward in life. And, and I, I, I did, you know, I was on that path and and going to school and, and working and, being a single mom. And, um, I, um, I met someone, I wasn't planning on really like, you know, I didn't, I wanted to, um, it wasn't in my plan. I'll say that to like meet someone and get married at the time that I did, but I met someone who was, um, really, you know, wonderful person. And, um, we decided to get married, um, in, in, you know, during all of that time period and, and start our own family. And, um, you know, I, we were, we were just this young couple and, and we had, you know, my son, Travis, which, you know, became our son. And to me, I just thought, you know, people say it's so young, it's so hard during that time. And like, really he was going to college and working at night as a concrete core driller. And I was working still as a waitress. And I started working also, um, as the school, as a substitute teacher, I taught PE for a while and it seemed on paper, like we really looking back, we're so poor. I mean, yeah. we just were uh-huh. so, we didn't have anything. But to me during that time, it, purpose. well, it was, I was so happy. And yeah. like, to me, like we had everything and it seemed, life seemed very easy to me. Mm-hmm. You had a companionship with your husband. You had a beautiful son. You had, you had security, you had room and board, you had all the necessities. So it was peaceful. It was peaceful for me. And there wasn't like, there wasn't yelling and, and screaming and, and, um, and there was predictability and it was a safe, you know, place. There was a companionship. And so, um, you know, as we went forward, you know, we started our family and, um, you know, we started, you know, having more children. And I really, you know, knew that, um, I, I had done what I had set out to do. Like we had this, you know, life. I mean, you by any, it. we were doing it. And by anybody's standards, I mean, really, it it seemed like a white picket fence, li- you know, life. I think my husband might have a little bit different <laughs> take because he was like working all night, mm-hmm. you know, pouring concrete, um, you know, going to school, studying, you know, all these things. You know, we had all, all these different things in life. And I think... Um, I I think to him, there was a little bit more struggle, but I was used to such a different kind of struggle Mm -hmm. that to me, it seemed, it seemed easy to me. So in comparison to where you into comparison to where um, I had been. So 
you know, we went on and, and just were like living our life and creating this family and, you know, starting businesses and, you know, like developing and, and really creating this life that we, you know, wanted and loved. And um, we had quite a few things that were curveballs in life thrown, thrown our way out, out of the blue. We had left, he had graduated college. Um, we had made the decision to move out of state for him to take a job. And he ended up going in, into business with a friend. Um, and we had been there, we moved to Utah and we had been there not very long, really just a few months, um, long enough to enroll Travis, our oldest son at the time, he was 11. He had started, um, I remember him trying out for this baseball team and he had all these coaches kind of fighting over this new kid moved into town, you know, and he mm-hmm. was super athletic and really good. And all these coaches, they were like, it was like a, like they were recruiting him and they were calling me, telling me, you know, he should be on our team. You know, we'll really help him and all this. Mm-hmm. So I just remember there's this big hoopla around which team we were going to be on. You know, we mm-hmm. didn't know anybody at the time. We had two other sons, Kate and Rhett and Rhett was a baby. And, um, so he, you know, started on this baseball team. We moved in this little house and it started this new company, which, you know, um, we were moving forward in our life. And his very first day of baseball practice in this new town, new state, new place, we didn't really know many people. Um, he, my, my cousin went to school in the college. We were in a college town and she went to college there and she had come to his practice and wanted to take him and his friends, a couple of his friends roller skating after practice and which, you know, great, uh, just no problem. And, um, I went home with my two little ones and they took off to go to the roller rink after practice. And I got a phone call. Um, I, I think probably it was about 30 minutes after they left um, from one of the kids' dads that said, the kids have been in an accident. You need to get to the hospital. Um, you need to get, come now. And so I, I dropped everything. And, and um, I had a neighbor that I didn't really know come over and watch little ones and called my husband and said, you need to meet me here. And I walked into the hospital. Um, and I'm looking for Travis. And I, you know, I can, thinking of it in my mind, it's like in slow motion you know, and it's still like it was yesterday. I walked in and his, you know, best friend that he had gotten to know, Derek, um, I walked straight and I could see him. It was covered in blood. There was a lot of nurses and everything around him, but he was like sitting up and alert and awake. He actually had been like scalped, you know, so there was a lot of, you know, bleeding and a lot of blood. So, and he had like um, his neck, he had some injury, not permanent, um, long-term injury, but he'd hurt his neck and a few other things, but all things that would heal. Mm-hmm. So I remember seeing him and I remember thinking, where are the other kids and where's Travis? And in my mind, and I could hear this sh- high-pitched screaming, like shrieking sound. And I, I turn around and I follow and I see, then I see another scene and I hear the sound and there's like 15 doctors and nurses frantically around. And I realize, I remember this moment, I realized that's, that's my son, that's Travis. And so I walk in to this room and they are not even really paying attention to me. I come up to Travis and I see his eyes and they're, they're rolled back in his head. They're white. You know, all I can see is the whites of his eyes. And you know, I remember putting my hands on him and saying, Travis, it's mom, you know, it's me. And, you know, he, no he wasn't responding and they had cut his clothes off. They cut his shirt, cut his shirt off. And I just, 
you know, could see this tan, you know, skin. And I, I just remember looking at him and then he stopped. He stopped shrieking. He stopped screaming. And they, at this time, I remember they took me out and put me in a room where now I know it's a room that you don't want to be in. It's a room with no windows and some chairs and a phone. And it's really a room where you've got to call and, you know, give like you got to call and get some bad news. And so in that room, I, I, I knew the gravity of what was going on. I knew that he was teetering between life and death. I, I knew it in my heart. I didn't really want to believe that, but I knew it. And so I remember getting on my knees and praying and I knew Travis well enough to know, like he's an all in kid. Like he does something, he's all in and he's happy about it and has fun doing it. Like he is an all in kind of kid. Uh, and I thought, you know, if the Lord's calling him home for something and he has something for him to do, he's Travis would be all in. He would want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying this prayer and I said, you know, I, I really want him to live. And I, I was like begging the Lord, like, this is what I want. But I also knew that if Travis had to make a choice, that it should be his choice. And so I remember praying and telling the Lord that um, this is what I want, but I want it to be Travis's will and the Lord's will. I remember saying those words. And I remember later looking back thinking, I don't know. I never would have thought I could have said those words, but I did say those words. Um, Minutes later, I really don't know how many minutes later, they were taking him out um, to lifelight him. He had to go to a trauma, you know, it was called Primary Children's Hospital. And I came out there with him thinking that I'm going to get on this helicopter to get on. And I remember the lifelight team, there was a a lady and she got and she grabbed me and by the shoulders and she said, I'm so sorry, but there's no room for you on this helicopter. And we need this whole team to save your son's life. And I had, I just remember tears and this wind and the sound of the helicopter. And she said, I promise you, we will do everything we can to save your son. She said, you have my word, but we've got to go. And you're going to, you, you can meet us there, but you have my word. And I just remember looking in her eyes and we locked eyes and I said, okay. And then she hopped on and I remember watching that helicopter like fly over the mountain to get him to this children's trauma unit. And then my husband and I and his business partner, um, they, he drove us and then we had to drive around the mountain Mm -hmm. to get there. And that was one of another, like such a hard thing to do. Um, but Travis ended up, um, he was in a coma. Um, they had to like cut, they have to remove, um, your skull. It's called a bone flop. So there's room for swelling. His prognosis would be that if he lived, he would be, um, he would be like a vegetable the rest of his life. And, um, he had so much, you know, there's so much damage that was done. And I will say that he did live. He did come out of a coma. Uh, when he did wake up, um, he um, he was like a vegetable. He couldn't squeeze your hand. He couldn't blink his eyes. He couldn't look at you. That's where he was. And so, and he was only eleven years old at this he time. He was eleven years old. 
So as you can imagine, mm-hmm. you know, this was like uh, such a, I don't know, there's no words really, like a kick in the gut, you know, feeling like the rugs pulled out from under you. Like there's no words for the effects that this, yeah. you know, the tsunami effects that it would have on on our lives as a couple, as a family, um, financially. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it was huge and completely changed our our whole lives. So during this time, how long, how long did it take for him to come to a point where he could walk again, talk? But yes. Well, he doesn't talk. He hasn't. Oh, that's right. He hasn't spoken since since the accident. Um, Or at least, I mean, communicate. Well, so what? You know, the doctor started telling me, um, Miss Ashton, you you need to get in reality here. You need to uh, like prepare your home. He's either got to go in a long term care facility and be taken care of like an invalid, or you've got to prepare your home like with elevators. You got to lift because you're going to, you know, Mm -hmm. he's going to be too heavy for you to like put in a bathtub or, you know, all these things you need to get your home. And, and I remember just in my core, I just, and I attribute this to really God's voice, you know, telling me that was not going to be the case. And Mm -hmm. I did, and I think that we can make up our mind that we're not going to accept something, but also Sometimes you have to accept things. Yeah. And I remember questioning myself is like, am I not accepting this? Am I just not wanting to be in reality with this? Or is God really speaking to me saying, you know, because already like just the first amount of brain surgeries that he had, you know, you're looking at a million dollars, you know, right then, you know, right away, the expense of it. Of course, when your child is hurt, you're not thinking about what it costs. You don't care. It it could be a hundred million dollars. You don't care what it's going to cost. But, um, but at some point, like the costs come into play, right? you know? And so you're talking about, we have, we're brand new, just starting out, like just started a business, um, you know, barely, you know, a young family, um, you know, and so you're talking about installing an elevator and building ramps and, you know, yeah. lifts and all these things, like it's extremely expensive, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. And so there was there, the practical aspect of it too, that like, I really needed to know, like, because if we needed to do it, we had to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I would, we would find a way for that. But, yep. yeah. you know, really needed to know. And I just had this strong, strong feeling. And um, I think my husband really trusted me on this. I don't know that he really felt one way or another about it. He, he was overwhelmed in his own way. I think we were overwhelmed in different ways right. and trying to manage our other two younger kids. But, um, but, we made a decision that we were just going to trust this, you know, belief that we didn't install elevators and build ramps and, you know, lifts. We didn't. And um, to answer your question of how long, um, I think it was about nine months before Travis started, um, um, like being able to like stand up and walk. So there was, you know the progression of it he couldn't hold his he couldn't sit up and hold his head up at first so it was just like learning to sit up mm-hmm. learning to hold your head up he was like a noodle you know it was such a long path i mean he started being held up by like six therapists and us and like learning to just move his foot 
you know, that was just a very long, long process of, and then he um, made it to where he could lean on, uh, he was on two bars and then he could lean on the wall and he, mm-hmm. he had a walker. And then he went to a cane. He had a cane for a while. And I remember one day in the rehab, he, he was in the hospital. Um, I can't remember exactly how many months, but I remember his accident was in March and he came home and this will tell you the year he came home right before 9-11 happened, like two weeks before 9-11 happened. Um, he had just come home from the hospital. So I remember him, he could barely walk and he couldn't talk, but at this time he could, you know, he'd begin to be able to communicate. He learned some signs and st- the kid already had a sense of humor, you know, sense of humor was there still. He was always a funny kid and cool. prankster. And also bold, do it his way kind of kid. And I remember he walked over to this older man who had had a stroke and the guy was in a wheelchair and Travis gave him his cane and, um, and then like wobbled back. And I was like, wow, Travis, you can't give away your cane. (laughs) And he basically communicated to me, he's going to need it Mm -hmm. more than I do. I see he gets his drive from his mom. I think that, you know, he really, you know, the, the, the gentleman that he gave it to was in a wheelchair and couldn't walk. I think it was a message to him of you're going to get out of this wheelchair. Yeah. And also it was saying, I'm not going to need this. Mm-hmm. But I was like, Travis, you're going to fall. <laughs> you're going <laughs> to fall. Go get your cane back. Go get your cane. And he wasn't having it. So then, you know, he would practice holding on to the walls and then... Um, and then once he did come home, I remember helping him walk out. We had a trampoline out in our yard, the the round circle ones. And he would, his brothers would be jumping on it and he would hold onto the side and like walk around that and hold onto it. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he would do this for hours. Wow. And so that began, but really years, he had a feeding tube. He no longer has a feeding tube. Um, he had a, a a shunt in his head, which the doctor said, well, he'll always, he'll have a shunt for the rest of his life. What is a shunt? So, um, are you, do you know what a bilge pump is in a boat? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's exactly like that. Um, it's like a bilge pump that drains, um, your, you know, the fluid in your brain. It basically s- circulates that. And, and our, our bodies do that naturally. Mm-hmm. It's always circling, goes through our spinal column. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's exactly like a, it's a bilge pump that they put in your head. Um, but anyway, Travis kept having that, having to have that replaced anyway. Um, he, he doesn't ha- he hasn't had that for years. It, it eventually, and I, the doctor said, these don't come out. I don't, t- I put these in. I do not, they don't come out. His but came out. His came out. It just go, goes to show the, um, the power of your own will and God's will for your life and how much we release our power and we release our destiny to someone else's words we it's the doctor says then oh okay the doctor says i mean it's no and i'm not this is not to bash doctors at all this this doesn't have to do with just doctors it's anyone it's what you allow someone else to speak over your life and if you are accepting everyone else's words over your life man you're you're in for a long ride because there's always an exception to every single Absolutely. And Travis has had incredible doctors who saved his life and he would not Mm -hmm. be alive without them. So, I I mean, so much credit and, you know, awe goes to 
the doctors, the nurses, who yeah. incredible, incredible people, um, therapists, you know, all the all these it's taken, you know, teams of people to help him to rehabilitate. And but I will tell you that like he had a um, and I'm just Dr. Brockmeyer was the pediatric neurosurgeon that originally did the surgery that night and was his neurosurgeon for a long time. He invented, I mean, crazy, crazy smart, you know, human being. But he patented and invented these different types of shunts. Um, and you know, I give him so much credit because he told me that, you know, he's the one that said, you know, shunts don't come out. I don't take them out. But he listened to me as a mom. And really took what I had to say. And he said, no, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't recommend the surgery, but he said, I'm, he was willing to listen to me mm -hmm. that it needed to come out and willing, you know, Great to doctor. work with me. So what an incredible doctor, yeah. you know, that he was willing to kind of even go against his own better judgment a little mm -hmm. bit. And we're not talking about like a cast on an arm. Yeah. We're talking about his brain, you know, brain yeah. surgery. So Really kudos to him and, you know, and, and doctors who listen and listen to their patients and like find work together as a team, um, but trust like he, he trusted me as a mother and I, and to be honest, I trusted him, you know, I really trusted him, you know, that we, you know, we have to try this and we have to do this. So, um, there was a partnership there, but to what you're saying, um, had we listened and just said, okay, we're just going to accept what the doctors say. Travis, I, I, he probably wouldn't have lived very long, but he, he would be an invalid, you know, he mm -hmm. would be a vegetable. And not only did, you know, in my core, I knew that wasn't, I just knew it. I knew it inside of me, but he also, he knew it and he has, he's fought, he's a fighter. So Travis can't, he's not able to speak. Um, he doesn't have a lot of use of his right side. He can't use his right arm. He has a limp. He walks with the limp. Um, he, he uses a towel, um, you know, he drools some, so he has, has a towel with him. But Travis is, uh, he's fun and funny. He helps me so much today in, in our house, uh, you know, and around our home. Um, if you want to find him, if you, if you find me or either of my brothers on social media, like there's lots of videos of him. He is like an incredible one-handed golfer. No way. Yeah, he so plays. Awesome. He plays right-handed with his left hand. <laughs> it's crazy. But and he can like it hit works. it in the fairway. It's incredible. Like he's actually it's it's pretty amazing. And he has so much fun um and, and loves it. So I truly found a quality of life through this. Yeah. I mean, he's such a, a, a an inspiration, an example. And um and it's interesting because our book and children, we have a younger daughter that's she's nine, and um she also has some disability. She's blind. She's completely blind. And um, so our bookends, you know, children are are, are different. Um, but you know, that's your oldest and your youngest. Our youngest. That's when you say bookends. Our bookends. Yeah. Okay. Our, our number one and number six. So it's interesting because how close they are. So she, he can't talk and she can't see. But yet <laughs> they. Their synergies. Their synergy. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. And it has been. That is amazing. Since like day one. Talk and she can't see. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So how has this all affected you? Because growing up the way that you did, and then now you have, uh, you have a large family, six children, the oldest one, very dependent on you. Your youngest one, very dependent on you. Um, you're used to people depending on you because you grew up that way. 
how how did this affect you? Well, <clears throat> like I said, you know, when this something like this, you know, so this kind of trauma, unexpected thing happens, it's, you know, it's it's very difficult in all kinds of ways for families um, and, and marriages and couples. And, you know, I thought at that point, you know, I had one, you know, I had created this family that was exactly what I wanted. And then we had this like major things happen in our lives. And um, I didn't realize that I still was really struggling. Um, I didn't even know what the word codependent me meant, mm-hmm. but there was a point in my time in my life, uh, maybe a few years after Travis's accident where I realized well, for one, I started getting physically ill. I started having, you know, physical problems in my life. And then um, I recognized that I wasn't myself. I used to be creative. I used to be funny and fun and silly. I used to plant flowers. I used to paint. You know, I used to do, I used to dance and, you know, all these things that made, is me who I am. I recognized that I didn't, that I, I, that I didn't do that anymore. I also recognized, um, and it's really interesting because I was like, okay, you're one of the only sober ones in your family, <laughs> you know, stone cold sober. And I was completely numb, mm. totally numb. I didn't really cry and wasn't particularly like a sad thing could happen. And I was, I didn't cry. I was really numb. And then like the joys and the happy things, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel loved and I didn't, I like recognize it. Of course I loved my family, but I didn't feel it, you know? And, and so I recognized that there was something wrong with me. And so I started like reading like, okay. And I had already read so many self-help books, help books along the way in my journey. And, um, but I started realizing like, I got to figure this out or maybe I might need to start drinking, you know, like this is it. <laughs> This isn't working. Try this other side here. Yeah, this isn't working. So I really dove in and started reading. Um, I think Ben mentioned this book, but this particular book, so many light bulbs went off with me and it was codependent no more. I have read that book. I don't know how many times I've read it. I do read it at least once every year. I have given it away and I don't know, countless times I've given this mm-hmm. book away. And cl- I have clients, you know, I I do coaching and I've given this book and, you know, told a lot of my clients, you know, you need to read this. And, uh, but for me personally, it, um, opened my eyes that I had a lot of behaviors and coping mechanisms and ways that I was existing that I didn't realize that really weren't serving me well. Hmm. That was really, um, really dysfunctional, even though from the outside looking in, you know, I wasn't, they, they don't show up in a big way. Like if you're, you know, drinking and, you know, doing all like the things that at some point it's going to show up pretty quickly while I was serving in church and taking care of my kids and going to the gym. And, you know, like I looked like I was living a normal life, but inside it wasn't working. I was not okay. It's, it's interesting how the, okay, there's not really a definition very clearly stated about codependence, but uh, from my understanding, you are the co-person of the person who's dependent on something. So you're, you have a, you have a person who is dependent on some sort of coping mechanism for whatever it is that they're feeling, whether it's drugs, alcohol, shopping, sex, um, just a multitude of things. And they are, they are dependent. Well, then you have the co-person and that's, that's 
the, the spouse or the mother or the father or the child or whatever. And you can be uh, an adult, a kid, any, any, you were codependent by the time you were in junior high or high school, because you were taking care of your brothers and you felt the need to do that. Mm-hmm. And then anyway, it's, it's interesting how it goes through the generations. So you may have a father that is dependent upon alcohol and then his children grow up and they are now a codependent, but their behaviors of control and anger and um, just even manipulation, they look like a crazy person themselves. And then they can turn to something. They can turn to a drugs or alcohol. And then it just keeps passing along and then they get married and then their the spouse continues. It, it, it continues. Spouse, it's just, it just goes all over. It continues. Well, there is a lot of definitions of it and there's a, and it encompasses a lot. Um, um, if any of this is like landing with anyone, I would say like, you know, read this book. Um, some of the things that I realized in myself is that my internal feelings and how I felt was based on the people around me. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, um, I, I had le- started learning about boundaries from an early in like really figured out, okay, I've got to set boundaries. And so I had these people in my life. My mom was one of them um, at different times in different ways. My brothers, you know, I had to set these really strong boundaries with them, but still how I felt inside was mm-hmm. deter- still determined by them and what they were doing. For instance, I could set a boundary and say, well, you're not going to come to my home. Um, you know, if you're not sober, I could set that boundary. I could say, um, I'm not going to bail you out of jail. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to support you when you're doing these things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and I did, I, I did that, but I felt terrible inside. I felt so guilty. I felt this mm-hmm. need. I felt awful. Like the so guilt. It wasn't empowering. It was, it was so there, you're tied to the people. Yeah. No matter how much you get away, you're tied to them. Mm-hmm. They are determining how you feel inside. Another definition that I love is, um, and, and this is really the core of, of being codependent, is it's a lack of self-love. You don't know, you don't grow up knowing how to put your needs first. You don't grow up knowing that you have feelings that matter. You don't, because when you grow up, whatever the situation is, you're, you're, you learn to ascertain, like, if there's an alcoholic, um, how are they behaving? What are they doing? Are, are they, or how are these, are they fighting? Like, what do I need to do to self-protect and to protect these other people? Mm-hmm. You're, you're always in figuring out based on what they're doing, what you need to do. So you're always measuring, what are these people? How are they acting? What do I need to do to self-protect? And in my case, you know, protect my brothers. So you don't wake up in the morning and say, well, how do I feel? Mm-hmm. You're learning how they feel and it will determine how you feel, how you feel. Mm-hmm. and also your behavior of what you need to do. Now this, they give a lot of scenarios in the book, but I thought this was interesting. If you have someone, let's say you marry someone who is, a, who, who had substance abuse of some kind and, but now they're sober but they never dealt with those emotional issues that caused them to be uh, dependent upon some sort of chemical. And they're angry, irritable, um, just they're off the cuff all the time. They're, they're just like up and down, up and down. Well, you can then become codependent upon them. So it's not just about 
a substance abuse right. in in the you would think oh wait they're not doing any drugs they're not doing any alcohol but they're always up and down so then you can so it's almost like you're a co-codependent you're a coco <laughs> absolutely Coco-co. and then it's you're like coco is crazy you, you get crazy but in that kind of situation yes. what i see and it was ultra comp very common in that particular situation and there's all kind of variations of that is okay now i need to make sure that they're not triggered so they don't go back into this i need to make sure that you know i need to walk on eggshells and i need to make sure that they feel loved and that they feel okay and they don't get too hungry and that they don't have a lot of stress. So then you're like, I, I need to make sure you feel responsible for yeah. them staying sober. And you, you know, th- that it's still the same thing. Mm-hmm. But now it's this, you take that on. It's very, very common. And so really, truly hear the key. You know, if, if you're in that situation where, um, in a, where you have a spouse and now they're sober, if you are going to live your life externally you will never make them sober or stay sober you can think you are you can pretend you are you can hope you are and you can cheer for them and you can pray for them and you can do all the things but to you it's a lie you are never going to make them sober they're going to decide if they're going to be sober or not i will tell you the thing that is what gives you power and this is really where um i learned this for myself and and i teach this and i help people with this a lot is where you will have influence and where you will have power is you heal you. Mm-hmm. You learn to actually feel your feelings. You learn to recognize what they are and you learn to take care of them. You take care of you. It's very difficult for a codependent person to take care. And it's, they don't know, it's, how. They don't know how. And also there's this need to control everything. You know, it's just in a, it's, it's in us, it's in you. Wherever you grew up in it, it's it's there. If you grew up in any kind of dysfunction, there's this need to to kind of control everything. Um, so you have to learn really like I, just when I started on this journey, you know, I at one point I hired a coach and she said, OK, like, so what what are like, what are your needs? Did you even know how to answer that? No. Now I was a wife taking care of four brothers. You know, at this point I had five kids and, you know, I was taking care of all these things, you know, we businesses and, you know, I was working to, you know, high clients. And so I'm doing all these things of taking care of like all these people. And I couldn't answer a question of, well, what do I need? What do I even want? You know, me considering me, it didn't even occur to me. Also, what are you feeling? I don't know. What does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> I felt fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I'm fine. I feel fine. Well, to really actually understand what I was feeling and really learning to heal and learning um, it, my inner, you know, thoughts in my head to really recognize that, you know, I had these um I, I describe them a lot like, now I didn't know this existed, but there's a thing, you probably know this and you may know this, but there's truck codes, right? In a truck. Did you know oh, about truck yeah, codes? Yeah, yeah. And like you can delete the factory codes, yep. right? Reset them. You can reset them. So I had this really breakthrough of probably maybe two to three years after Travis's accident where I had really been immersed in helping him retrain his brain and like reconnect his brain, reset his brain 
to connect to his body, you know? And it, so I, at this point, knew more than a person should know about how the brain works and, you know, mm-hmm. all of that. So I had this epiphany one day, and, and this was like in the depths. I really felt chewed up and spit out by the world. It was just so much piled on me. And I'd been taking care of so many people for so long, never even thinking about myself or knowing what I would even I did, like you said, I didn't know. I didn't know how to do that. So I just had this epiphany. Okay. If Travis can retrain his brain mm-hmm. to like sit up and eat and swallow and walk and all of these things, like I've got the, I learned that my brain had these preset things going on and I realized I, I can retrain them. Yeah. I can do this. And so I set out on a journey to do that very thing, to even just start to recognize what are those beliefs or preset thing as a child. Typically, if you've grown up in any kind of dysfunction, narcissism, abuse, fighting, you know, any kind of dysfunction, there's going to be something along the lines of you're not enough. You don't matter. It's your job to take care of everyone else. You're responsible for everyone else. I had a client actually tell me this, um, that he um, had thought about suicide for a long time, but he was so responsible and he had so many people to take care of that he could- I don't have time to, (laughs) off myself. (laughs) He literally said that. And we laughed about it, but also cried a little because it was true. You know, it was true. And so- um, you know, I started to learn about myself. I started to recognize what were these beliefs that I had that we don't realize are even there as a child. Um, I started really making an effort to retrain those things, reclaim myself, figuring out how do I feel? What are my feelings? What do I even want? What do I need to do to take care of myself? I think the biggest thing that it, it to that for me to overcome was I had learned how to set boundaries, which is just a must. You, mm-hmm. It's a must to learn that. And I had done that and I could do it. But then the second pa- step of that was learning how to do it and not feel guilty or not feel responsible yeah. for the outcome or what was going on in their life. So release the emotion behind the it. Heart. And so I, it took me the same amount of battle and time to figure that out and to learn how to set boundaries see your loved one struggling, not be responsible for their feelings or their outcome or their addiction, and love them. Mm. When you set really good boundaries and you release that, then it provides this place where you actually can love them mm-hmm. and have compassion for them. I thought it was very interesting in the book where she said, if you are a codependent and you do not heal yourself, you, your, your spouse doesn't fight a chance. Until you you have to heal yourself. Now now don't take that like now you feel guilty. That, that you sounds like a healed. codependent statement. If, I, if it you don't heal you, of, then your husband's not going to be healed. It, well, if it, well, it, it kind of is, but then it isn't. Well, too. and and I will say this is that it doesn't matter if you did if you didn't grow up with an alcoholism or anything like that. If you want to be a good parent, and this is where I fell into leadership coaching, because if you want to be a leader of an organization and you want to have an impact and grow an organization, or you want to, you know, you want to be successful, or you want to do, you know, these things in life that requires, you know, leadership and you actually having an impact, that includes being a parent. I mean, we all want to raise, you know, incredible kids who function mm-hmm. well in life. If you want to do that, 
Um, if you want to have a relationship with them and you want to actually truly have impact um, and be able to have influence on people, it always comes from healing yourself. When you heal yourself, that influence and impact, it, it naturally grows. You naturally grow and you will. And it's interesting. And I tell my clients this all the time. When you change, you can't do it to change other people or it won't work. But when you truly change. Maybe that's the statement I was trying to. Yeah. If you do it to change other people, it will not work. It will be yeah. ineffective and it'll backfire. But when you truly do the work and change yourself, everything around you and the people around you change. Mm -hmm. It's like the uh, airplane going down. You got to put on your mask first or you're not going to be able to help anybody else. Absolutely. And if in, in you too, you have to get out of the lens of I'm going to do it for all the other people. You have to love yourself enough to just do it for you. Yeah. And once you can really get into a place, it feels so selfish. It's the most loving thing you can do for mm. everybody. It's truly the most loving thing you can do for everybody is to heal, to, for us to heal ourselves. So for, for people out there that struggle with this, I mean, what is the first step? I mean, because if it's such a selfish act and you can't wrap your head around doing something for you, you're always so dependent on doing it for others. What, what would be the first step? How do you start? Where do you start? Well, for me, I, I started um, on my knees, you know, like prayer and asking for help. But then um, I, I just started searching and, and reading books. I would say find a mentor who's been through this, who, who, who you admire and who's, you know, walked this walk, um, hire a coach, um, listen to podcasts, everything you can to learn. You know, there's so much available out there. There's, there's, so much. there's out there so much available free, yeah. you know, but, you know, read books. Most of us can get a book, <laughs> you know, you know, start with codependent no more or whatever you're led to really start with the, the mindset that I need to do this for myself. I need to do it for myself. Just switching that mindset and I am worthy of it. And not only, um, you know, if I want to be the person that God sent me here to be and fulfill my life purpose, it, 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 there's no other way. Mm. You have to do it. So powerful. This goes for more than just alcohol. We've, we've said that. We've said drugs. I've said this a few times. Um, alcohol, drugs, sex addiction, porn addiction, shopping, hoarding, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, any sort of compulsion dis disorder. If you are living with someone who is dealing with any of those issues, there's a way that you can get help. And if you are someone who has any of those issues, you can also get help. Of course, there's, there's, I didn't realize that there's like sex addiction anonymous. There's Shopping Anonymous, Sugar Anonymous. <laughs> There's all these things that are out there. Um, in addition to, uh, there's a community of people out there for you because that may be your personality. Um, and of course, the, the coaches and the therapists, like she was talking about in the books. And how can people find you? Um, people, can, people can find me on um, Facebook, Instagram, Melissa Lynn Ashton. I just started a new Instagram where I'm really giving a lot of tips mm -hmm. and things that I've learned um, called the Melissa Lynn Show. Mm -hmm. um, that's on Instagram. Um, you can find me there. Um, I would say to something that I wanted to add to that is even if you don't have a label like an addiction or, you know, there's no label there. I think we have a, we, the, the real true, you know, uh, 
epidemic or pandemic or whatever you want to call it, is we're living in a society of people that are extremely anxious, mm-hmm. uh, struggling with, I am not enough, I'm not good enough. You know, people feel alone and isolated. Mm-hmm. And really, truly, every age group is like really serious anxiety. Um, and if, and you know, if you are struggling with all of that, all this applies. You don't have to have a label or somebody in your family, you know, grew up with one of these addictions yeah. or things. There doesn't have to be a substance or, you know, this excessive behavior involved. If you just are unhappy and anxious mm-hmm. and you don't feel like you're good enough, <laughs> it all applies. Or what you have is good enough or the money you make is good enough. Or you're or- not a good enough mom or... If I could just do this, or if I could just have, you know, this weight, or if I could just, you know, have, you know, less wrinkles, if I could just make this amount of money, if I could just provide this for my family, if I just, you know, it's this lack. We live in this society of believing that, you know, that we're never enough and there's a lack. It's not true. First of all, it's all a lie because we live in, you know, we're all very blessed. And I just want to say, if you want to be happier and find to really feel joy, have relationships with the people that you love, which I don't know any human that doesn't want that. Mm-hmm. I think we all want that. It's available. It is available to you. So just know to take the first step. If you want to heal, mm-hmm. you can heal. Mm-hmm. You can heal. It's possible. It's available. And you can do it. Um, you know, you can read these books. You can reach out to a coach. You know, obviously you can find you can find me, but there's there's a gazillion people out there offering, you know, ways to help and people that have walked this path. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not the only one. There's so many inspirational people. And we have it all at our fingertips now mm-hmm. because of social media. Absolutely. There's an abundance. Missy, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and just just a piece of it. I know there's just tons of different ways that that story could have gone. Um so thank you for sharing it and coming in and talking with us and true inspiration. Yeah. It's thank you. Thank you so yeah. much for having me. It's I, I've enjoyed being here with you. Thank you. All right. Now let's go get some coffee. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Bye everyone. Thanks Take so much care. for listening. Thanks for listening to another episode of According to the Castles with Amy and Trey. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. To stay up to date with the castles, follow Amy on Instagram at acastles. Until next time, have faith, enjoy life, and love abundantly. There are so many supplements out there. How do you choose? If there was just one supplement that Trey and I would recommend, it's definitely Ningxia Red. We have consistently drank Ningxia every day since May of 2015. It's a whole body health and wellness supplement that's a powerhouse full of antioxidants and nutrition. Ningxia Red is made with pureed wolfberries, also known as goji berries, along with blueberry, plum, cherry, aronia, and pomegranate juices. These are very high in antioxidants that boost immunity and protect your body against oxidative stress. It also has food-grade essential oils like orange and lemon, yuzu, and tangerine. These provide an incredible dose of D-limonene. Trust me, Google that. 
This is just a two ounce shot of liquid gold and it supports your body for better energy and healthy cellular function. Why is that? Well, that's because you're getting antioxidants equivalent to eating like eight pounds of carrots and 16 whole oranges. Trust me, your liver and your eyes will thank you. If you'd like more information, visit my website, www.amycastles.com. What was the first thing that your mom would ask you before you'd go to bed at night? Did you brush your teeth? I don't know about you, but my mom always asked that. Since I was a kid, healthy gums and teeth have always been important to me. But after a lot of research, I figured out that there's actually a lot of junk in the commercial toothpaste. Everything from SLS to artificial flavors and colors, sweeteners even. And I didn't like the way that they didn't actually get my teeth super clean. I felt like they weren't really actually supporting good overall oral health. Well, I'm so excited to tell you about a product that I created in 2016. Sparkle Dust is a non-toxic, chemical-free tooth cleansing powder that instantly brightens and strengthens and remineralizes your teeth and your gums. It will leave your teeth feeling like never before. They will feel cleaner, smoother, and brighter. You will feel like you just left the dentist. I love that feeling. Sparkle Dust is made from nine different organic earth-sourced ingredients, including minerals and clays. It's a natural solution proven to get you the smile that you've always dreamed of. Learn more about Sparkle Dust by visiting my website at www.mysparkledust.com.